I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, big business is weighing in on polarizing issues and shaping laws like never before. Companies are sort of being forced to respond, often on social media, to the hot button issue of the day, and they're sort of, you know, feeling a lot like our politicians do in Washington now, the same way they deal with it. Then, the unsung heroes of World War II. It's impossible to overstate how many ships we were sinking, how many Japanese ships and German U-boats we were sinking as a result of these intelligence reports that the women were drawing up. Plus, the jobs that are exported not once, but twice. Actually, many of the things that Americans buy today at shopping malls are being made by Chinese companies not in China, but actually in Africa. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 2016, the Walt Disney Company made a threat. They threatened to stop filming movies in the state of Georgia, along with their subsidiary Marvel, which is home to the likes of Guardians of the Galaxy, Black Panther, and Spider-Man. Oh, no. My friends are up there! What? Uh, don't worry, ma'am. Everything's gonna be okay. Excuse me! Excuse me! Oh, my God, that's tall. Some argued, though, that the bigger threat to Georgia was actually from a TV show, which also filmed in the state. It's a hit on the network AMC. It's called The Walking Dead. What are you doing? Come on! Just like Disney, AMC opposed a so-called religious liberty bill, which had cleared the Georgia House and the Senate. The bill said that religious leaders did not have to perform wedding ceremonies they didn't agree with and that faith-based organizations could refuse to serve people if they felt like it would violate their beliefs to do so. It was reported that the NFL might not want the Super Bowl in Georgia if the governor signed the bill, and the NCAA might not want to hold championship games in the state. So the governor, a Republican, was trapped between religious interests and companies with a lot of economic leverage. In the end, he vetoed the bill. It was a sign of the times, a time in which the power of business to shape politics is like nothing we've ever seen. Aaron Chatterjee is an associate professor at Duke University's Business and Public Policy Schools, and he has studied the increasing entanglement of politics and business. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you. So uh, you write about how companies used to support what was once referred to as the Michael Jordan dictum. Explain that and why it was once the prevailing wisdom in business. Well, I think the conventional wisdom was uh, for a long time, why would you want to alienate you know, 50% of the country right. by taking on a really controversial issue? And we're not really sure whether Michael Jordan said that or not, but the notion uh, when he was asked to get involved in the political campaign and sort of uh, demurred mm-hmm. was the idea, well, why would you want to be controversial and turn off people who could, who could buy sneakers? Mm-hmm. And so I think that the you know, neutrality, on especially controversial social issues and politics, that sort of carried the day. But companies, Kara, have always been involved on trade, on immigration, on mm-hmm. tax policy, things that directly affect the bottom line. I think what's new is this set of issues like the ones you talked about in Georgia and here in North Carolina. Right. And and with the issue of trade, like you said, it's really purely about money. But now it's things that like, why would Disney care about a religious liberty bill? Does that affect how well their movies sell? 
maybe or maybe not, but it seems like it's kind of going outside what is directly involved with marketing that movie. That's right. The aperture is starting to open and the scope of of business and their role in society is starting to widen. And because of that, you see businesses getting involved in religious freedom bills down to the details about transgender bathroom access, which happened in HB2, religious freedom in Indiana. And I agree with you that the scope of business involvement in politics has increased uh, in a big way recently, particularly with CEOs speaking out on these issues. Um, Going back to North Carolina, where you're sitting right now, uh, remind Mm -hmm. us what HB2 is. Sure. House Bill 2 in North Carolina. House Bill 2 uh, contained a lot of different provisions. The one that actually drew most of the attention was around transgender bathroom access. And as people might recall, the city of Charlotte in North Carolina had passed an ordinance related to this, and the legislature uh, passed a law shortly thereafter, signed by then-Governor Pat McCrory. Well, HB 2 and and transgender bathroom access became a giant issue. I would travel around the country, and people would, when I told people I was from North Carolina, they'd ask me what I thought about (laughs) HB 2. That became the identifying feature of North Carolina. We're used to basketball, but now people ask us about HB2. HB2 was later uh, revised. Uh, Many people on both sides still frustrated with the current state of play. But that was an inflection point in this debate. And the NBA, the NCAA, PayPal, Deutsche Bank, several other kinds of organizations heavily involved in lobbying the state against HB2. Is there a time in history, is there something you can pinpoint where you can say, like, whoa, that was an inflection point where somebody stood up and what we considered normal in terms of taking a political stand changed. Well, I've tried to look at it in a historical perspective. And if you look at the turn of the 20th century, you had folks like J.P. Morgan getting mm-hmm. very involved in the U.S. economy, you know, bailing out the U.S. economy, mm-hmm. some people say. During the civil rights movement, companies like Coca-Cola in the 1960s were, were heavily involved, uh, equally so in the um, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa in the mm-hmm. 1980s. But this recent wave of CEO activism, by my calculation, it really began with Tim Cook's statements uh, around Indiana's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. At least that's when it really came on. The map for me. As you recall, that was a law in 2015 that was signed by then-Governor Mike Pence. As you right. know, that name might sound familiar. Yeah, He's now the vice president. Yeah. But uh, Tim Cook was one of the first business leaders to really speak out against that. And one week later, the law was revised. Also, you know, a year earlier, he had been on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week as the, you know, coming out as gay. And that was a big uh, sort of moment as well. So while he's reserved and quiet, perhaps, in his demeanor, he's taken some pretty big steps as the CEO of Apple. So what do you feel like, you know, you talked about this move on Apple's part, but we've seen Patagonia speaking out uh, and actually suing the Trump administration on behalf of uh, federal lands, you know, trying to preserve uh, federal lands and not make them privatized. We've seen the CEO of Chick-fil-A speak out and say, I don't believe in gay marriage. We've seen the CEO of Hobby Lobby say, I don't want to you know, support the morning after pill for for my employees. You could go on and on. How has this just kind of blown up and become something that so many CEOs now are willing to take a stand on at the risk of alienating huge swaths of people who are their customers? You know, Kara, I think it's something that we're, we're trying to understand right now because it's happening very quickly. But my best guess is the following. One is that at least for LGBTQ-related issues, a lot of businesses had settled these issues inside the corporate halls in the 1990s and early 2000s. You know, a lot of these companies had subscribed to non-discrimination policies long before they were debated uh, in states like North Carolina, Indiana, Texas, and, in, and around the country. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is I think companies felt a little more comfortable speaking out because it was sort of 
settled law inside a lot of companies. And that's an interesting divide you'll see, you know, particularly as it relates to diversity. There's a lot more consensus inside corporate America, at least on the books, than there might be outside corporate America, as you see in these state legislatures. So I think mm-hmm. that was the first thing. Mm-hmm. The second thing, which is a little more subtle, is, you know, we've documented this political polarization that's really gripping the United States of America, right. where Republicans and Democrats are deeply divided, conservatives and liberals are deeply divided, and we're seeing much more ideological sorting, where we all kind of retreating to our own camps and our own echo chambers. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of world, Kara, everything becomes political. And so companies are sort of being forced to respond, often on social media, to the hot-button issue of the day, and they're sort of you know feeling a lot like our politicians do in Washington mm-hmm. now, the same way they deal with it. So that's where I see a lot of the CEO activism coming from, too, just the progression of this politicization uh, of American life. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Aaron Chatterjee, an associate professor at Duke, about how and why some CEOs and companies are starting to take part in social activism. So talk to me a little bit about the bottom line for these companies. Have there been companies that have suffered from positions they've taken, that have benefited from positions they've taken? They've taken these big stands, and then what happened? <laughs> well, you know, the cautionary tale of Starbucks, uh, who is who is lampooned by John Oliver and lots of others for their pretty idealistic uh, race together campaign. You'll recall this is when Howard Schultz asked uh, sort of people to write race together uh, on the coffee cups to have a conversation or spark a conversation about race. And while it might have sounded good on paper or on a coffee cup, as it were, uh, in execution, there was a lot of pushback. And, and both from the left side and the right side of the political hmm. spectrum, people said this isn't a good idea. And they discontinued it nearly a week later. So it didn't even have very long shelf life. Papa John's CEO recently spoke out against uh, the NFL anthem protests, uh, arguing the NFL should have managed that much better. He's no longer going to be the CEO of Papa John's and, mm. and received a lot of blowback from that. So you're seeing companies and the executives who speak out certainly suffer uh, when things don't go their way. You're also seeing companies try to fix those mistakes. If you see Under Armour and the CEO, Kevin Plank, if you recall, he made some pretty mild statements praising President Trump uh, Mm. recently. Steph Curry, one of the major endorsers, if not Mm -hmm. the major endorser for Under Armour, took issue with that. Mm -hmm. And Plank was forced to run a a full-page ad in the Baltimore newspaper uh, clarifying their position. So I think Mm. you see companies really uh, getting burned by this, trying to come back from it. Some other companies, I think, are trying to capitalize on this. You see that with Lyft that donated a million dollars to mm. the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and uh, all those companies trying to seize the moment and the opportunity to be activists. So you see it coming from both angles. Have you seen companies where they took a stand on whatever issue and sales went up? Like clearly people are like, I like that stand and I'm going to eat your sandwiches or drink your coffee <laughs> or buy your sweatshirts or whatever. Well, it is the million-dollar question, and and it's very difficult to to attribute an increase in sales to a particular stance. Mm-hmm. The two things we have on this, uh, my own study with Professor Mike Toffel at the Harvard Business School, does find that when Tim Cook spoke out about religious freedom in Indiana, people's intent to buy Apple products, not their actual purchasing, but their intent, did increase. And it seemed to be okay. associated with the idea that uh, Tim Cook had spoken out on an issue they cared about. Mm-hmm. But to tell you the truth, we still don't have uh, any systematic evidence that speaking out will always lead to an increase in sales. It probably depends on the context, the issue, mm-hmm. and the CEO herself in terms of what's going on. And certainly, I mean, I know like Howard Schultz back oh, like five years ago uh, was very pro-gay marriage um, and spoke out against an investor who said, you know, I, I don't think you should be taking a stand on this issue. 
And it may not have done anything great for Starbucks, but Starbucks uh, is doing very well as a company. Like, it didn't seem to have hurt. It, it doesn't seem to have hurt Starbucks. It doesn't seem to have hurt uh, other companies that have taken stands. I mean, Apple, look at them. Right, uh, right. You know, it does not, doesn't seem to have hurt them at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Kara, I'll tell you another thing. Uh, you know, I'm currently teaching a class on um, on these topics, including a case on CEO activism. And I find my students, who are mostly millennials, they predominantly, not all, seem to be very open to CEOs taking these stands. And mm-hmm. they think that... That millennial purchasing behavior might be different than the older generations. Mm-hmm. The idea that some of these things that CEOs are talking about might really resonate with millennial customers and even more importantly as potential employees of these companies. And so it could be that this new generation is going to introduce a new dynamic into the costs and benefits of CEO activism. So often it seems like these stances are taken very quickly, right? They're responding to events in the news. It could be uh, the travel restrictions uh, from President Trump, or it could be the pullout from the Paris Climate Accords. And I wouldn't think that there would be a lot of sort of internal or external polling and people thinking like, okay, if we take this stand, are people going to buy our yogurt? I mean, it just does not sound like... (laughs) That's what they're doing. Not to my knowledge, Kara, you know, there could be uh, super secret efforts inside these companies to do that. What I would say is I would bet on that being the way of the future, because as companies seek to collect a lot of data on us and we seem to be willing to give it to them, I imagine that our political uh, interests and particularly how salient politics is to us, how much it matters to us, is going to matter a lot to them. You know, if you think about what makes you want to buy a car uh, or any kind of product, it's your identity, how it makes you feel. And if Mm -hmm. politics is a big part of how we feel, when the politics is going to be a big topic of interest for the data gurus at these large branded companies. And so I see that happening more and more. And maybe a year from now, we'll be having a very different conversation. It's interesting, though, that you say they are not now doing a lot of polling, because even though CEOs have not been, obviously, elected by voters, they seem to have tremendous political power, at least in certain cases. And I wonder if you think like CEOs are able to change policy. And I Because I feel like we are seeing it happen in real time. Well, Kara, I think the answer is yes, they're able to influence policy. You know, they've always been able to through lobbying and campaign contributions. But now they have this additional mechanism, which is, you know, to speak out on these laws publicly to massive social media audiences and also use economic leverage, as you mentioned, with Disney and AMC. And, of course, PayPal and Deutsche Bank here in North Carolina, Apple and Angie's List in Indiana. We've seen Mm -hmm. it time and time again. I will say two things. One is uh, for folks particularly who feel like their voices aren't being heard, this kind of uh, display of CEO power is exhilarating. They feel like someone's standing up for them where you know, the democratically elected representatives are, are going in a different direction. But others, uh, and regardless of political persuasion, but many others, I think, also feel queasy about it for the reasons you talked about. No one's elected these CEOs to, to get involved on social issues. And so, at least for my students and people I've talked about with this topic in depth, I mean, there's this interest in, well, you know, are we giving corporations too much power by encouraging CEO activism? And I think that's a legitimate topic uh, of discussion as well. Um, do you worry that we kind of risk further polarizing the country if we become a place where there's already lots of differences, obviously, between Republicans and Democrats in states that vote in different ways. But, you know, if Democrats are like, well, I'm not going there and I'm not doing this and Republicans feel the same way. And so you get, you know, Democrats drinking their coffee at Starbucks and we're in Patagonia and Republicans are eating at Chick-fil-A and shopping for crafts at Hobby Lobby. And like, even the things that could bind us together, like the experience of the everyday where we shop, even that is different. And nobody even goes to the same stores as anybody else. 
Yeah, Kara, you've hit on something really important that's already happening. We're already sorting by the neighborhoods we live in, the types of schools we attend, Mm -hmm. the types of products we buy. You know, there's a recent paper uh, in a sociology journal called Why Liberals Drink Lattes. And it's a really great great article because what it it points out is drinking a latte or wearing camouflage, these things aren't traditionally or anywhere tied Mm -hmm. to being a liberal or conservative. They have nothing to do with political ideology. But we're all adopting these markers of our political affiliations to kind of fit in more with the group that we identify with. And that's where our social media feeds are being dictated by, uh, our neighborhood conversations and coffee chats. And so you're right, as we see these inflection points where companies are going head-to-head with state legislatures, and in, in the cases we've talked about, it's primarily companies espousing the progressive side of the spectrum in terms of the, the issue and mm-hmm. conservative legislatures that are led by Republicans, you could potentially see more division. On the other hand, with folks that I've raised this with, particularly on the progressive side, they've said, well, look, the, these are fundamental human rights, and these companies are committed to diversity, and mm-hmm. they ought to be fighting with these, these things whether they do business, whether they, whatever they can have leverage. And so mm-hmm. I see, it, again, depending on your political lens, it really depends on how you look at CEO activism, which I found to be very interesting. Aaron Chatterjee is an associate professor at Duke. He has studied the increasing collision between politics and business. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. On our website, we'll have a few other stories of business getting tangled up in politics, like the saga of Ivanka Trump and Nordstrom. And we'll link to our own discussion about the curious tale of Charles and David Koch, owners of Koch Industries, who are some of the most politically active business owners out there. That's all at innovationhub.org. In 1941, Anne White was a senior at Wellesley College when she received a letter. It was an invitation to meet with a professor in the astronomy department, but it wasn't about grades or a class that she had to make up. Instead, the professor asked Anne two simple questions. Did she like crossword puzzles? And was she engaged to be married? Anne White was being recruited as a codebreaker, and there were legions of other women that would work alongside her as cryptographers during World War II. The importance of codebreaking in that war is pretty well known, but the fact that so many of the people who were actually breaking the codes were women, that's not. Liza Mundy is the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. Liza, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So um, why did these secret letters that I was just talking about, why did they start being sent out? And who, like, how did the military initially know who to send the letters to? That's a great question. So the reason that the letters started going out boils down to basically the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor. Okay. Uh, in, in December of 1941, uh, our Pacific fleet was attacked by the Japanese and many thousands of American men died in an attack that we had no idea that it was coming. So Pearl Harbor simultaneously uh, thrust us into World War II. Uh, Suddenly, we were fighting pretty much in all corners of the globe. And at the same time, it exposed our incredible deficit of intelligence gathering. And it's it's so hard to kind of cast our minds back to that time. We have 17 intelligence agencies right. in Washington now, but we had nothing huh. back then. And so the fact that it was a surprise 
uh, caused a lot of uh, finger pointing mm-hmm. in the U.S. Navy and and the recognition that we had to ramp up our intelligence gathering instantly and specifically our code breaking. So the U.S. Navy reached out to the Seven Sisters Colleges and some other women's colleges. Let me just stop you right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why reach out to women's colleges? Why not reach out to Harvard or right. or you know Rice University or what? Like why women's colleges? Well, that's what the Navy had been in the in the tradition of doing before the war. It would reach out for its intelligence officers to Harvard and mm-hmm. MIT and mm-hmm. Yale, like to turn to the most elite schools. But all of a sudden, all those men were gone. All those men were unavailable huh. uh, for intelligence gathering or learning how to become code breakers. They were shipping out to mm-hmm. Europe, there to the Atlantic, to the Pacific. They just weren't there. Mm-hmm. So when I was doing my research for this book, I actually found a memo in the National Archives in which someone in the Navy, an official, uh, typed up new source women's colleges. Hmm. So if they couldn't get the Ivy League, they were going to turn to the female equivalent. Hmm. So after the women were recruited, and you know, a lot of people were recruited in college, so they're not done with college yet. They get this kind of secret letter in the mail. They go, they visited often a professor at the college who was kind of the clearinghouse for right. these women who'd gotten these secret letters, and they were taking these also secret courses in uh, crypt analysis. They were not supposed to tell anybody what they were doing. How did they? How can you have a secret life where you're taking classes and nobody knows what the class is about and what work you're doing? for? How can you possibly keep that secret? Right. So they were taking classes at night in locked classrooms. At Wellesley, it was taught, the class was taught in the astronomy observatory, which is kind of set off from the main campus. And the thinking was that if there were lights on at night in the observatory, nobody would really question why. Hmm. At Goucher College, they were taking classes, the young women, at a, in a locked classroom at the top of Goucher Hall, hmm. uh, again at night. So you can't have the enemy know that you're working their code system or that you've broken their code system because the enemy then will change the code system. Mm -hmm. But ironically enough, it turned out to be easier for women to keep the secret. When they came to Washington, they were told that if anybody asked them what they were doing in these top secret compounds where they were working, that they should say that they were secretaries Mm -hmm. and that they sharpened pencils and filled wastebaskets. And because they were women, people believed that Mm -hmm. the work they were doing couldn't possibly be interesting or important. Mm. Um, And and how hard, you know, you talk about these classes that are really secret. How hard was what they were trying to learn and what they were trying to do? It was really hard. I mean, when I was doing my research, I read I read a lot of the training materials, which still exist in the National Archives, mm-hmm. and I could understand the principles of what they did. And, and, you know, certain kind of elementary steps, like one of the first things you learn to do is take what's called a frequency count. And you understand that the alphabet has certain mathematical properties. So in the English language, there are certain letters that appear more often than other letters like S and T and E. Mm-hmm. There are certain letters that appear together a lot, mm-hmm. S and T or mm-hmm. EST or ION. Right. And they learn how to sort of study the behavior, the mathematical behavior of language. So if those letters get scrambled and all of a sudden they're seeing a cipher in which Z appears frequently, then they might think, well, maybe Z is E. And so maybe it's been substituted for a common letter. So they learned how to do that. And, and that, that doesn't sound that hard, but it very, very quickly gets quite difficult. And there were so many different code systems being used. World War II was a global war being fought in every corner of the globe. Right. We didn't have the 
internet. We didn't have emails. Telephones weren't used that much. So all of the enemy, all of the commanders were, were communicating with their troops via radio. And all that was being encrypted by different systems. Some of them were numerical. So words would be rendered as number groups mm-hmm. and then new numbers would be added. The women had to learn how to do the math to strip out that encryption. Mm. Uh, but some of them were code systems in which letters would be scrambled and they had to learn how to basically sort of unscramble them. So it was fantastically complicated is all I can say. Mm. So I assume that they were mostly working on German and Japanese codes, that those were the most important. Was there one that was far harder? I mean, I would just wonder to what lengths the Germans and the Japanese went to to encode things, and if one got broken way before the other or... Yeah. Well, there was one that got broken before the war by a woman, a graduate of the University of Buffalo, Genevieve Grochen. She broke this incredibly important code that was being used by Japanese diplomats who were stationed in Europe. They were communicating back with Tokyo. So ironically enough, this was the best, our best intelligence coming out of Europe because they were hanging out with Hitler and Mussolini Mm -hmm. and other Axis leaders. So one of the incredibly important pieces of intelligence we got from that code system. The Japanese diplomats were invited to tour the coast of France, and they reported back in detail on where the coast of France was well fortified and where it wasn't. So when we were planning the D-Day landings, we knew that Normandy would be a better place to land than other parts of the coast. So that's Mm -hmm. the kind of uh, intelligence we were getting Mm -hmm. for our own strategic planning. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Liza Mundy, the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. I just wonder if you kind of take a step back and you think, you know, of being a military leader or being a government leader in the early 1940s, and you have this incredibly important job, cryptography. Now, I I know, as you said, you know, men are off fighting, and so there's not a lot of men around who can help. But, you know, Women don't run anything, right? They don't run the government. They don't run the military. They don't, you know, run almost anything in the U.S. at the time. Why trust women? Why believe that women could take on a job that is clearly so crucial? Why not keep back just some of the men who could have gone to the front? Well, necessity is the mother of inclusion, right? I mean, (laughs) to a certain extent, we didn't have a choice. But I would say at the beginning of this effort, uh, there was some skepticism about whether women could do the work and whether women could keep a secret. Mm -hmm. So at first, they brought in women, but they did have male officers who were in charge. Uh, But as the women proved that they could do the work, and and you had literally, you had 22-year-old women who were breaking Japanese military code systems and compiling intelligence report every day Mm -hmm. for the U.S. Pentagon. As the women proved that they could do the work, they brought in more and more women and shipped the men out to sea. And often the men were supplementing their efforts in the theater of battle. So the men were sort of doing it in the field. The women were doing it domestically in Washington. And ultimately, there were 11,000 women or more uh, doing the work largely in the Washington, D.C. area. Hmm. But the the women did have to prove that they could do the work. Mm -hmm. And and the women who joined the Navy, they would become lieutenants. They would become naval officers. Hmm. They would be trained to shoot pistols because at the Naval Code breaking compound, there was a pistol on every desk in case anybody broke into the compound. So the women were taught to shoot. Mm -hmm. I read memos, you know, where male officers were discussing, like, God, can we teach these women how to shoot? Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't have any clear regulations. So they decided, well, we got a pistol range. So yeah, let's teach them how to shoot. So they were sort of making it up as they went along and as the women were proving what they could do. Was the Pentagon and maybe government officials, were they quickly convinced that, like, yes, women are up to this task, even though we may have had some questions beforehand about 
whether they were or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the women uh, who was breaking Japanese army codes that told the location of Japanese troops, this was called order of battle. It was really important intelligence for the U.S. military. She said, you know, we, we broke those codes and we wrote up an intelligence report every day and the and a Pentagon would send officers basically breathing behind our neck, uh, telling us what they needed and, and telling us to hurry up. Mm-hmm. So the military obviously had complete faith in the intelligence because we were sinking. It's impossible to overstate how many ships we were sinking, how many Japanese ships and German U-boats we were sinking as a result of these intelligence reports that the women were drawing up Mm. and the breaking of messages that foretold where Japanese supply ships and Japanese naval ships Mm. would be. That Mm. intelligence would go to an American submarine commander who would be waiting when the ship appeared on the horizon. It was always in the right place at the right time. And we just sunk thousands and thousands of ships. You say that some women broke codes that revealed that ships or uh, particular areas that were occupied by people that they loved, that they knew that those places or those ships had been captured by the enemy or the ship had been sunk by the enemy. I mean, that just seems traumatizing to figure that something like that out. Absolutely. Uh, One of the women in my book was, uh, she rose to become a lieutenant. She was what they called a watch officer. She was heading the shift at the Naval Code Breaking Compound when they broke a message saying that her own brother's ship out in the Pacific was being targeted by a kamikaze. Of course, the kamikaze raids toward the end of the war were terrible. And she assumed that her brother was dead. She later told her son that the only thing she could keep doing was her work. Uh, It did eventually emerge that her brother was one of the few that had survived. But that just shows how stressful the work was. There were other women who were able to keep tabs on their brother's ships and report back to their parents that, you know, that so far their brothers were okay. Uh, But they couldn't tell their parents how they knew that. So how long did the code breakers work? Did they work all the way up until the end of the war in 45? And then what happened to them, you know, the day after D-Day and VJ Day? Like what happened? Yeah. The women worked, you know, they worked uh, 24 hours a day. They worked uh, eight-hour shifts uh, all day long. They worked absolutely until the end of the war. One of my most moving chapters in terms of reporting it and writing was the group of women who were breaking and reading the German U-boat codes, and they experienced the D-Day landing. They were they were on the midnight shift on, on June 6th, uh, 1944. They knew that the landing was going to happen, but they didn't know what day it would happen. Uh, They thought it wouldn't happen on the 6th because we had a full moon. But I read um, logs showing that at 1.30 in the morning, which would have been, you know, later on in Europe, they started receiving German messages in which the Germans were describing with shock and awe uh, the Allied ships that were appearing on the horizon. So Mm -hmm. the women experienced the D-Day landing from the point of view of the Germans who were chattering up and down the French coast about what was happening. So that was incredibly moving. And also the women experienced the Japanese surrender Mm -hmm. in the code-breaking compound. It was actually a woman who uh, was sitting at the uh, receiving machine. Uh, The Japanese surrender message came out a sort of a, a lesser Japanese cipher system. And there was a young woman who had mastered that system and, and knew it better than anybody. And they knew that the surrender message was coming, but again, they didn't know when. And she was sitting there and received it. So she was the first person hmm. to know that uh, that Japan was it's surrendering. Yeah. And and of course, there was enormous celebration in, in Washington. The women all described that. They thought that, they, that we would roll up the code-breaking operations after World War II, you know, that we wouldn't need to do them anymore. Right. 
But very quickly, uh, the wartime code breaking turned into Cold War code breaking. And we were reading the codes of the Soviets and the East Germans and the Cubans and the Chinese. And there were a number of women who stayed on with what became the NSA, the National Security Agency. Uh, And there were a number of women who were leading Cold War code breaking. There was a woman named Juanita Moody who was in charge of our Cuban code breaking, which was considered a little bit of a backwater until the Cuban Missile Crisis Mm -hmm. happened. And she was leading the code breaking for that. Uh, So most of the women did have to leave. They returned to sort of their normally scheduled lives. They got married. Uh, They had babies. They received no credit for what they did. They were told never to talk about it. My central character, Dot, uh, had never talked about it till I interviewed her. Um, Her younger brothers both survived the war. They both had jobs after the war that entailed top-secret security clearances. They would get together and brag about their clearances, and Dot could never tell them that she had had a top-secret security (laughs) clearance also. So that's the sort of thing they had to put up with. Just talk a little bit. Like, you went out and talked to a lot of these people. Um, Just talk a little bit about, like, what that was like and where you met people and, you know, what kinds of things they were telling you. Yeah, okay. Well, I generally – I've spent a lot of time in assisted living facilities. And um, I've I've eaten a lot of uh, tuna fish salad and (laughs) butternut squash soup. Um, But I've had just incredible – uh, interviews talking to these women were born in 1920, mm-hmm. you know, the year that women got the vote. They lived right. through the Great Depression. Uh, they experienced that aspect of American life. They were so spirited and so plucky, like even in their mid-90s. Mm. Uh, there was one woman here in Washington who was living in an assisted living facility, but she liked to meet me at the Cosmos Club downtown over Bloody Mary's. <laughs> and she would take public transportation to get to the Cosmos Club. Mm. And one day when this when the subway broke down, she just got out of the subway in a neighborhood she didn't know, and she just waited for the bus so she could get downtown and we could talk and have Bloody Mary's. Uh, and, and there was another woman who, um, in an assisted living facility, In Atlanta, she had broken her wrist the night before our interview, and I took her to the emergency room the next day, and we conducted our interview in the emergency room. Uh, And um, she said to me during the interview, I just hope that I live long enough to see the book published, Mm. because the women really wanted to finally get credit for the role that they had played in the war. And and fortunately, she did live long enough to Mm -hmm. see the the book published. And some of the women have gone on little book tours. They've been really... um, honored in their hometowns where they live and have given talks and and asked to sign books. And it's been very meaningful to see them get the recognition and credit that they should have had all along. Liza Mundy is the author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. She is a former reporter for The Washington Post and a senior fellow at New America. Liza, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. It's a pleasure. On our website, Liza Mundy takes a few minutes to tell us the story of her central character, Dot, who, when she got a chance to break codes, could not have been more thrilled. She was making $900 a year teaching school, overworked, underpaid. She had a boyfriend who had shipped out to battle and had sent her a diamond ring. Uh, She didn't really want to be engaged to him, but American women were told uh, that you can't upset the morale of the troops. That's at innovationhub.org. And an interesting historical side note here. There was a woman who wanted to work as a codebreaker, but she did not get that assignment. Instead, she was told to work on something pretty new. It was a computer called the Mark I. Her name was Grace Hopper, and she eventually became one of the most important people in programming history. 
We recently talked to her biographer, and you can find a link to that conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. If you stop Americans on the street and you ask them, where all the jobs went that we've lost to trade, you're going to hear a couple of countries cited a lot. One of them is China. And that's absolutely right. Lots of things that used to be made in America are now made in China. But to lose sight of those jobs once they head to China to assume that that's where they stay is to miss the next part of the trade story. One Americans don't know a lot about, but one that will increasingly shape our lives, both because of economics and more immediately because of those genes that you just bought. Irene Yuen Sun is an engagement manager at the consulting firm McKinsey & Company, and she's the author of the book, The Next Factory of the World, How Chinese Investment is Reshaping Africa. Irene, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. So I mentioned genes, but you say it is not just genes. You've got Chinese um, and Taiwanese companies making Reeboks, Levi's, yoga pants that you can buy at Kohl's, and those Chinese companies are not making those things in China. Um, so do you want to talk about like what's going on here that we're not actually seeing? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Actually, many of the things that Americans buy today at shopping malls are being made by Chinese companies not in China, but actually in Africa. So take the country of Lesotho, which is a tiny country that probably most Americans have never heard of. Uh, It's in southern Africa. It only has two million people. And yet it has dozens of factories that produce clothing, apparel for Levi's, for Kohl's, for Walmart, all these brand names that we've heard of. And the owners of the factories are Chinese or Taiwanese, um, but all the workers are locals. Hmm. If you take a step back and you think, well, this is maybe interesting for China. This is maybe interesting for Africa because all these jobs are being created. But why does America care? Like, do Americans really care if their yoga pants get made in China or Bangladesh or Lesotho or whatever? I would say two things about why Americans should care. So first of all, I think they should care. Um, Now, the two reasons for me would be, one, America has been heavily involved, you know, as the leader of the free world, in trying to help Africa alleviate poverty and become middle-income countries. And America has been engaged in that ever since independence for most African countries. So it's been more than half a century. And I think we have to be really honest with ourselves and realize that a lot of the dogma of how America has tried to do this has not worked. And now there's this big new opportunity that Africa can industrialize and actually change the structure of its economies by using manufacturing investment from China. And so this is a historic opportunity towards a goal that America has been putting resources and energy and people in for a long time. The second reason that I think America should care is, you know, on the global arena, China is taking on this new interesting leadership position in the world. And China has unique things to offer. And I think Americans, you know, have this way of defaulting uh, into perceiving 
you know, issues with China as a zero-sum game. And I think for the benefit of the world, it's helpful to start examining these, these phenomena like this one, where China is actually playing a really unique positive role that doesn't take anything away from the U.S. It's not like there are labor-intensive factories that the U.S. could be outsourcing to Africa today, right? And for the peace and security of the world, I think it's really helpful for Americans to start recognizing these unique roles that China can play for the, our shared prosperity. Can you give an example of an African worker you met whose life has been changed by a Chinese company coming to uh, Africa? Like, where do they work? What do they do? Has their life been changed? Yeah. Um, One person that comes to mind is a man named Ahmed. Uh, He is a now middle-aged man uh, from northern Nigeria, which is the poorest region of Nigeria. It's close to the area where we're hearing stories about Boko Haram today. And he, like many young Nigerian people, uh, didn't receive a very high-quality public education. And when he got out of school, he basically tried to find odd jobs on the street to make ends meet. Nothing very steady. The youth unemployment rate in Nigeria is extremely high. And one day he meets a man named Mr. Wong on the street. And Mr. Wong is this guy from China that had just arrived in Nigeria and wanted to set up his own factory. But Mr. Wong doesn't really speak English very well. So the two people are like you know, sign motioning as best they can on the street. They don't speak any of the same languages. (laughs) Exactly. And Mr. Wong says he needs a driver. So Ahmed becomes his driver and starts doing odd jobs in addition to driving uh, as Mr. Wong's setting up his factory, which is a cardboard box factory. And one day, Mr. Wong decides he needs to buy a car. Now, the import duties in Nigeria for vehicle imports are very high. And so what lots of people do is they go to Benin, which is the country next door, um, where the import tariffs are much lower. They buy a car there and then they drive into Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is Benin is French speaking. Um, And Mr. Wong doesn't speak English all that well, much less French. And so Ahmed has to do it. But this is in the days before, you know, secure mobile money. And so Mr. Wong has to hand over the entire payment for the car in cash to Ahmed. And, you know, all his Chinese managers are standing around like, this is insane. Like, you're going (laughs) to give however many tens of thousands of dollars in cash to this man. He's just going to disappear. But Mr. Wong kind of takes a deep breath, hands over the money, and Ahmed comes back with the car. And so from that point on, Mr. Wong decides to teach everything he knows about running factories to Ahmed. And so when I went to this cardboard box factory in Nigeria a couple of years ago, Ahmed was running everything. He's the factory manager. And everybody reports to him. Mm-hmm. You know, there are even Chinese line managers who have to report to him. Um, and some of them don't like it. But because of this job that he's worked his way into, he now has a real transferable skill set. He's highly valued. He's highly paid, um, particularly for someone of his education level. He's gotten to be able to get married, which men from his tribe need a certain amount of wealth 
to pay the bride price in order mm. to get married. And he's taken on not one but two wives. You know, polygamy is accepted in his marriage. So this is a rich man right, now. Right, right. And he's also brought his younger brother to work at the factory. He's brought many people from his village. And so his village is being transformed by this because one guy. This, yeah. By this one guy yeah. doing well at a factory. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. I'm talking with Irene Yuen Sun from the consulting firm McKinsey & Company. She is author of the book, The Next Factory of the World, How Chinese Investment is Reshaping Africa. And it's interesting uh, because, you know, you, you've pointed out that there's been this kind of paradigm shift uh, going on in terms of like how you've got America that for a long time, even now largely, has thought of Africa as a place that receives food aid and other kinds of aid, um, a poor place. But instead of thinking about Africa as a poor place, China thinks of it as a place of huge potential investment, huge riches. And it's sort of a turning on its head uh, the way that America has thought about Africa for so many decades. I just wonder how China first came to think of Africa as a place where you could make huge riches. Yeah, it's an interesting mindset um, difference that you point out. And one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by this phenomenon, which is that China sees in Africa what it itself was a generation ago. We have to remember, you know, I'm... 31 now. When I was a kid in China, there were very few highways. Um, This was a country where meat was rationed. Uh, You got a coupon of how much meat you could buy. You know, this was a poor place. And China itself, over the last generation, has gone through the most remarkable poverty alleviation record that any country in the history of the world has. And it's done that on the back of attracting foreign investment, attracting business and getting businesses to grow. And so I think there is a core belief that the poor places in the world can do this. Mm -hmm. And it's not a theoretical belief. It's a very practical belief. I hear the refrain a lot from Chinese entrepreneurs that I meet in Africa that, oh, this, you know, Ethiopia or Nigeria or Lesotho, wherever they happen to be standing as they're talking to me, this is just like my hometown 30 years ago. Interesting. And that is a powerful, powerful belief that's good for Chinese entrepreneurship, but also good for Africa, I think. So um, we've talked a lot about the upsides for Africa, the upsides for China. Um, Talk a little bit about what are there downsides for Africa that, you know, Chinese companies move in and obviously, to some degree, for good or bad, change the economic order, maybe change the social order. Like, what are the downsides here? Yeah, there are downsides. Um, And industrialization is not an easy process. It wasn't easy when it happened in China. Um, There's major environmental degradation, for example, that China is experiencing today because of the way that industrialization Mm -hmm. was done. And if you go back to, for example, when the U.S. industrialized, there were huge corruption scandals. I mean, that era of American history is is just scandal ridden Um, in the U.K. as well. The first country to industrialize. I mean, there's all these stories of London being filled with soot. And so this yeah, I mean, is not... People would come, I, I, I remember stories. People would come home at the end of the day and they had to change clothes because the white clothes they had were now yes. brown from a day out, exactly. just one day. I mean, that was just how messed up the air was. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, there are real downsides to industrialization, to the environment, and oftentimes to labor. 
because oftentimes labor unions and the protections that we have for workers in a society are playing catch up with how quickly businesses are investing and new forms of aggressive new investment are coming in. And you see that in Africa today. And so, for example, I uh, traced the story of a worker named Kenneth Frederick who died on the job. He was electrocuted to death at a Chinese factory in Nigeria. And I basically went and tried to talk to everybody who knew anything about this. The short answer is no one knows what happened, truly, and whose fault it was. The company says that Kenneth had basically disregarded some of their safety regulations, and that was the primary cause of death. The worker rights agency uh, organization thought that it was because the company um, didn't provide enough training and safety equipment that he died. And no one can really adjudicate what exactly happened because the systems for protecting workers and making sure that all these regulations we now have in industrialized countries, those systems aren't yet in place in Nigeria. And so these tragedies happen and those systems still need to be built. So give me a sense of um, where this goes from here. And if you you know, if you were to check back in 20 years down the road, what do you think, like, what do you see happening if you kind of extrapolate out from the patterns that you've seen so far? Yeah. So I think in another generation, there is a version of the world where most African countries are middle income countries Mm. and they are producing goods for everywhere in the world. So they're plugged into global value chains that produce the products, the tangible products that we all buy. And that increasingly there are African entrepreneurs who are setting up their own factories that are world class. So the same sorts of people that we see who are Chinese today, who have built up enough capital, enough expertise to be running world-class businesses. I think those same African workers entering Chinese factories in Africa today can, with 10 or 20 years of experience, be working for themselves, being their own bosses in really world-class firms. Irene Yuensen is author of the new book, The Next Factory of the World. Irene, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. If you're wondering, by the way, what percentage of Chinese manufacturing businesses have moved to Africa, Sun estimates that it's still only around 5%. And she says that the concerns that exist here about manufacturing moving to other countries and leaving our workers behind, those concerns don't exist nearly as much in China. That's because for the past 40 years, the one-child policy has turned China into an inverted population pyramid. Lots of old people, not a lot of young people. So the goal in China is to outsource or automate as many manufacturing jobs as possible. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.